Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid's Survive and Thrive series. Today, Dr. Blake Williamson welcomes Drs. Nanini Venkateswaran, Nicole Fram, and Arsham Shebani to discuss the best practices for gaining and sharpening surgical skills. Together, they chat about visualization, adding MIGS techniques to your repertoire, the benefits that come from visiting other surgeons in the OR, and much more. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Survive and Thrive, and I'm your host, Blake Williamson. I'm very, very excited about today's episode because it's all about surgical skills and how to uh, uh, gain more of them. I feel like we're always trying to learn new things. We're always reading. Um, we're always learning. But when you're talking about surgical techniques, that's different because you can't just read that about that in the book. You have to actually do it, right? And it's easy whenever we're in training and we have our uh, attendings over our shoulder, but once we get into practice, it's a little bit different. It can be challenging uh, to take on new techniques and new devices, things that you haven't done before, and you're doing them on you know, paying patients who are trusting you to do a great job. So that's why a lot of times doctors, you know, you say old dog can't learn new tricks, and a lot of times doctors kind of stick with what they learned in residency, and they don't grow, and, and I think that's a shame. And so what I decided to do was kind of have a cast of uh, – expert surgeons from around the country who um, are not like that, who are constantly uh, adopting new things and, and are pushing the envelope. So uh, joining us today, we have Nandini Venkat, uh, who is from uh, uh, Boston uh, at Mass Eye and Ear. And we have uh, Nicole Fram, who is uh, in Los Angeles, California. And then we have Arsham Shabani, who is in St. Louis. So we are so happy to have you guys here. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, Nandini. Uh, talk about um, sort of, uh, you know, right now you're, you're just getting out and you're, you're an attending now, right? So you just started at Mass Eye and you're in September. You just finished your fellowship and now you're actually teaching surgeons, you know, these residents, first and second year residents, you know, how, how's that going for you? I mean, it's, it's hard to now be in the seat where you're watching someone else operate because I think I almost can feel it's palpable in terms of the struggles or the hesitations that they're experiencing when they do certain aspects of the procedure. But I primarily work with fellows on calls. So we're doing these, you know, crazy therapeutic PKs or patch grafts. So in some ways, you know, they're sicker, harder eyes, but I try my best to let them do the majority of the case. I think the best way that I learned was to actually do those things myself to kind of struggle through some of the more, you know, the tough first four cardinal sutures or having a floppy iris that just doesn't want to go inside as you're trying to suture. Those are all just very challenging scenarios that you don't know how to encounter unless you've actually physically touched the eye and done it. And so I try my best to let them do as much as they can, because at least for me in training in, in the past, you know, six months before I started, 
what I loved from my attendings was that they gave me so much autonomy in the OR and they helped me just try such a variety of techniques and kind of trusted the process that they could fix something if something went wrong and allowed you to, to really take the reins. And I hope to at least be that kind of attending and impart those values in my trainees as I, you know, mentor more of them. And, and Arsham, you know, you, you, you were there too once. So you, you've been out, you know, whatever, five, six, seven years now, but you had that first year, you know, what have you, you know, you've been, you've been taking care of fellows and residents at Wash U for, for a few years now. What have you learned now that maybe you didn't know that first year uh, when you're trying to teach these skills? Yeah, you know, Blake, good, good to be here, especially with this, this group. I, um, I'll tell you, so I did a, a chief like year, which for us is an extra year and you're just the surgical trauma attending. I think trauma and kind of what you're talking about, which is you learn what you can kind of get away with, how the eye heals. And you pretty much can't really get nervous after seeing some of the stuff that, that we saw um, just over the course of even like several months. And, and I think probably the biggest thing that has changed for me and maybe what clicked uh, probably within the second or third year when I, I was teaching was I don't want residents and fellows to feel comfortable. I mean, until the day they are with me, I want everything to feel like, oh, there's still a little bit left to learn. And part of that is if you get comfortable feeling uncomfortable, you will adapt as the field continues to progress because way too often, like what you learn in fellowship, there's gonna be a lot of stuff that you're gonna do differently and that people are just gonna move past you if you can't adapt. So I think adaptability is probably the most important point um, when, when you're looking at just kind of training. And the other thing too, I tell residents and fellows, like, it's actually a little bit offensive and you know me and I don't get offended, but the closest thing for me getting offended is it's a little offensive when they're really nervous if I'm there staffing a case with them, because quite frankly, like I want ownership of the patient. They really have to be everything that they can be to do the best for that person. But you have to trust your attending that they were only really going to let you do things that they feel comfortable that you can safely do. And things are going to happen. It'll happen in your attendings hands. But um, the last thing for like someone who's learning any new procedure, resident, fellow, attending, it doesn't matter. If you have someone in there that you really trust, um, that's in there kind of helping guide you a little bit, you should take a little bit of that edge off and offload it to, to the person that's got a little bit more experience. It might not always apply once we're out of, of training, but those are just a couple of the things that I've, I've learned over the last several years. Yeah. And Nicole, I want, I want to throw it to you because you, you, um, you're known to do really complex surgery. You're, you're, um, you know, you do the, the tough stuff, the tough cases, and you do it in Los Angeles where, you know, people are, you know, expecting, I bet you there's a lot of, you know, high patient expectations there. How do you, how, how do you sort of keep up and how do you sort of try new things and new techniques on, uh, on, on patients out there in LA? You know, it's tough. I'm expected to do sublux IOL refractive exchange. <laughs> so it's like my lens is falling, but when you put it back, will you make sure I'm 2020? Uh, and so it, it, it's a lot of pressure, but I think the most important thing to do when you're adopting a new technique is to really practice, plan it out, call people that have done it. Um, and it's not just about watching a great, highly edited YouTube video. It's about really getting some sort of simulation model. I used to get pig eyes and practice Hoffman pockets, you know, when I was learning how to do these corneal scleral pockets for sutured IOLs. And whatever you can do to give yourself the confidence in the maneuvers, um, then when you get into the OR, engage your staff. So say, okay, 
listen guys, we're doing a new procedure and we have a whiteboard. And so I, and I did this with the fellows also when I would teach the fellows at UCLA is we would draw out every step and every instrument that we may need. And we would say, you know, I need this cannula because this may happen. I need tenonylin, I need adovicryl. And so the more prepared you are right before you start the case, the more you can relax into the case and say, I have my plan A, I have my plan B, I have my plan C. I'm not gonna get upset no matter what happens because I'm gonna be ready. Um, but the, the biggest issue is really talking to as many people as you can before the procedure and really practicing on a simulation model. You know, I was gonna use, you know, the expand diametrix um, new iris ring and it can get the capsule also if you have loose zonules. So I got myself a simuli and I practiced it a lot of times before I used it. Then when I did the case on a patient, I felt really confident that no matter what happened, I would know how to get it in and get it out. Yeah. What, what about visualization, Nicole? Do you ever, do you ever like kind of visualize the case? And I feel like sometimes I dream about surgery, which is sad and empathetic, but like, I feel like I've like, I'll wake up in the middle of a case in my mind, but sometimes I'll actually like I've been doing a lot of ICLs lately and I've been kind of visually kind of going through them uh, with the toric ICL. I feel like that, that kind of helps me as well. You ever do that? All the time, all the time. You know, you're visualizing, you know, the night before I used to sit there and just visualize all the different scenarios that could happen. Um, you know, as you become more proficient or just, you can think on your feet. I remember when I first started, you know, I would watch one of my, my partner, Sam Maskett, his videos, and then I would get Sergio, like, I'm going to go do that. And then I would go do it and be like, where did he put his paracentesis? <laughs> you know, it's just like, so I started editing his videos because I wanted to see what was in between the edits. And then I learned a lot of the tricks. So asking someone who does the surgery, can I have your unedited video is, I mean, that's like, you know, showing someone your dirty laundry, but you know, I think that that's amazing. And if you can find a mentor that would do that, uh, you can really see how to, to really get into the moment. You know, Nicole, like, uh, J Blake, can I jump in? Because she, like, nailed it. You know, there's, like, a couple of these, like, stupid things that you're attending say over and over and over again. And so a couple of mine are the OR is not for practice, which you completely nailed. I mean, this is not where we're practicing. Like, you're doing a lot of this stuff ahead of time. And the second thing really is have a backup plan for your backup plan. That's why she was going through the A, B, and C thing. Um, I think those are like critical, critical things anytime you're trying to learn anything new. I think even at, at least for me in my first year of practice, being at a large academic center, I take advantage of the fact that there are so many experienced surgeons operating the day that I'm operating. So, you know, I, I wanted to learn how to do an IOL lasso that I haven't necessarily done. I've done a lot of Yamani in, in fellowship. And so I just assisted one of my colleagues on her IOL lasso case, and she was helping me kind of plan out, okay, this is where you should make the groove. This is how to bend the needle. This is how to kind of angle it to capture the optic haptic junction. And those pearls are kind of invaluable because all of that speaking doesn't get shown in the video all the time. So actually being able to help her with that was invaluable for me. And I signed up a case in a few weeks to do that myself. And so, you know, and I, I have a wet lab here at Mass Eye that I've even used as an attending, you know, I know the residents and fellows use it, but you know, your first few months, you haven't been in the OR, your eyes were, your, your hands were kind of quiet for a few months. And so I just got in there and practiced, and that made my first few cases so much more smoother for myself, at least for my sanity. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, the Yamani technique. I mean, I feel like that's been such a, a popular thing the past year and a half, two years. Um, I've never done one. 
you know, I'm lucky to have a retina guy down the street where, you know, if something happens and a lens goes south or something like that, that he just sees him and he, he does a beautiful sutured IOL. And I'm very lucky to have that. But a lot of people don't have that luxury or, or they prefer to fix it themselves. How do you get started with that? I mean, what's the, I mean, I, I imagine, do you, do you really want to wait to do your first Yamani whenever, you know, a lens goes south and you're trying to suture in? I mean, how do you, how do you get started learning that skill? I mean, I think for me, I've, I've watched Nicole's video. I've seen Nicole speak at Aspirus, actually. I remember even as a trainee, um, seeing all of her initial videos and presentations. But something I've heard her emphasize so much is practicing on models. Um, I actually was using the Simuli model quite a bit towards the end of my fellowship during COVID, just practicing every single step of the Imani technique, you know, bending the needles, measuring out, you know, how many millimeters back from the limbus even the angulations of how I was holding the MST forceps to turn the, the haptic into the, into dock, into the needle. Those are subtle things that you actually won't figure out unless you try it a bunch of different ways and you figure out how it works in your hands. And, you know, and then I had very generous attendings who were allowing me to try it on their cases. And so I think practice does make perfect at a certain point, I'm nowhere near perfect, but I feel so much more comfortable having gone through all of those steps that, you know, I feel confident to sign up a case when I see one. You know, Blake, you bring up a really good point where, you know, let's say you're doing a pseudo exfoliation cataract and all of a sudden you drop the lens and now you got to do trectomy. And that's not, in my opinion, the time to try a new technique and, and be like, pull up the YouTube video. I think you close up in that case, but doing it in a planned uh, vitrectomized eye, you've practiced it, you have, you know, the right lens with the generous haptics that, you know, the PBDF haptics, so the CT Lucia, and setting yourself up for success is, is going to result in a much more positive outcome than doing it on the fly when you're panicked. Uh, so I think that that's really critical to adopting a new technique, like plan it out and, and do it in a way where you can be calm and you can think. Arsham, what do you think about um, uh, MIGs in terms of growing MIG skills? I mean, I feel like we've kind of convinced people uh, at this point, we've almost guilted cataract surgeons into doing MIGs. It's like, you're already in the eye, of course you're going to do a MIGs, and we're kind of we're getting there. We're starting to make some headway in the pseudofacic standalone space. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, five years ago, it was not as popular. Now we're, you know, fully in the revolution of MIGs. How do people start get, get, get started with that? Um, how do you kind of grow your skills in that space? And maybe, maybe, maybe pick one or two devices that, that you might want to start with. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, the comments that we've been talking about, like what Nicole even just recently touched on totally apply. Uh, I'd say like, don't have your first MIGs candidate as like your patient that is uncontrolled pressures on drops that they don't tolerate. But probably the most important thing, start gonioing your glaucoma patients in clinic first. Get used to what things look like, structures look like. And you get a sense of like, hey, is this TM light or dark? And the reason why that matters is if it's really light in your chart, you should write, I'm going to use tripan. When you start out doing them, it's the anatomy that's probably the toughest to kind of figure out. And in general, if you stay with tripan, the TM cells will take up that tripan very readily over any other tissue in the angle. So then your first case is, you might say you had a tripan case anyway. Well, take that patient, even if they have glaucoma or not, turn their head and get used to viewing the angle. The most common issue people have is they don't turn the head far enough away. So then you end up having these 
the, the tissue structures blending together instead of being very distinct layers. If you seem to think that like your trabecular meshwork is really close to your ciliary body band, you just haven't turned the patient's head away from you enough or they're not complying with you and looking away from you. And then as far as devices go, you know, the first generation I sent was probably like my, my go-to to teach residents. It was phenomenal. And, and if you think you can't do it, I have residents that are like 20 FACOs in that are doing some of these, these procedures. And, and I do think it's going to be a little different, like as, as residents move through training, but goniotomies now, I think are generally fairly safe if you're in the right tissue plane and for you to get in the right tissue plane, I think tripan is probably the easiest way to make sure you're in the trabecular meshwork. And then it's a light hand. So your, your gonioscopy hand that you're using with the prism, it's almost like this meniscus is coming on and off. And then the device hand or your goniotomy side, if you're gonna start with that, that has to be really light too. The most common thing is we're trying to force our way into the canal and then you continue to keep that pressure and you cause stria, you hit the back wall, things move around on you. It should almost be like a scooping out of the trabecular meshwork. And even if they have really dark pigmentation, that TM strip, as you're removing it, it will look very, very thin and lightly pigmented. And that's usually when I see people trying to push back in and get back into the canal. So um, visualization, tripan and turning the head enough, then uh, tripan does help with the TM stain, turning the head over and then picking the goniotomy on patients that again are controlled. You're going in for FACO. They might be on a couple of classes. I think those are the ones to look at. Don't start um, here. And one last pearl, and I don't know if people want to go this route or not, but you know, when you start a new procedure and we can all speak to this, imagine if you're adding a procedure to something that you always routinely do. So we'll take cataract surgery as an example. I'm going to say, well, in this cataract surgery that you've done thousands of times, you're going to do this goniotomy for the first time. If you wait till the end of the case, I've seen how the FACO starts to break down a little bit. People are just nervous the entire time. There's a lot of reasons to do these things at the start. One, if you do bust bag, at least you have a little bit of IOP protection. Two, you're getting the tough part out of the way when your visualization is best. And so in my mind, when you start with uh, angle surgery, start it at the beginning of the case, you'll get through it. And then the rest of it, you have time to allow the fluidics to flush the RBCs out of the eye. You get a little bit more patency through the collector. So um, those are just a couple of the, of my quick thoughts. Yeah, it's great points. And, and I, I always tell people the same in terms of device to start with. I think the glide is, which is the new generation uh, uh, KDB from new world. I think it's a great one to start because you can't really fail. It's an implantless procedure. There's no implant. So there's sort of this, you know, I talk to surgeons sometimes when we teach those wet labs at Ascaris and they're like, you know, what if I don't get this tint in, you know, they're kind of nervous about that. And they're nervous that their referring OD will think they're a failure because they couldn't get it, get stint in, you know, right. So with the with, with the glide now with the goniotomy, you know, and, and the other implantless procedures, you know, you're going to, you're going to be successful. You don't have to worry about getting the thing. in. so I think if you're just getting started, that would be a wonderful uh, device to start with. And then once you do, you know, 20 or 30 of those, then you're super comfortable in the angle. And I think that you can kind of go from there um, and, and kind of uh, 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 sort of scale your MIGS offerings. And that's why the TM thing is so important, because if you are on the wrong plane, just looking for pigmentation, I mean, we've repaired, I think we've had four to five clefts already, like since COVID of goniotomy's gone wrong too. So, I mean, that's the other side of it, right? Just make sure you're in the right spot. And I think tripan's like huge to help to, to ensure you have the right anatomy. What do you guys think about visiting other surgeons, right? So it, like, do you do it? 
Um, how often do you do it? Is that something you do once a year, every two years? Um, you know, because I just, I feel like just recently, I, I just, this is so silly, but I watched my partner do LASIK uh, a few months ago and I totally changed how I lifted flap. I liked how he, how he used his flap lifter. And I just, for whatever reason, we've been working together for three years and I just never watched him do a LASIK case. Cause why would I, I'm busy doing something else when he's operating, but I just happened to be in the clinic that day. And I was like, wow, I like how you lift the flap. You do that better than I do. I'm going to use that. So, so it's, it's, I feel like it's valuable watching other surgeons and I love to go visit other practices. Do you guys ever do that, Nicole? And I would love to, I, I, if, if we weren't in a pandemic, I would have been there every week, uh, coming to your practice. I, you know, I think it's a great thing. We recently, Ricky Enzor, uh, just came and spent a week with us and she visited with Netta Shami and with me. And it was so fun to have her there. And she was helping me with, you know, repairing somebody's wound burn and it was just amazing it's it's amazing when other people come you know you always take their little pearls and i think it's it's a great thing to do and she spent a lot of time watching our hands and watching how we navigate in the or all the little things what about you Nadine? do you go visit other practices and other surgeons i'd love to i haven't personally gone to other practices i mean at least training at multiple different institutions Throughout training, you really get a sense of the diversity of techniques and so forth, because, you know, every institution has a flair, every, they have preferences and so forth. So it's nice to pick up what works in your hands. And even as I was starting practice here, as I, as I was mentioning, just visiting people's ORs, you know, I like to see what patterns are they using on the femto for fragmentation for dense or soft, you know, little things in terms of how they're, what instrumentation they're using for cataract surgery, how their DMAC techniques might differ. I've actually implemented some change, some small changes. I even had my senior colleague just help watch a few of my LASIK cases to see if there's anything to change in terms of my technique. Um, and I've implemented some of her you know, suggestions. So I think you're constantly learning. I think within the first six months, I've implemented so many new changes that you know are different from what I was doing in fellowship, so. Yeah, I remember whenever I finished, uh, when I finished residency, uh, I got my truck and I drove around Texas for like uh, two months. And I just went and visited multiple practices in Texas, went and visited, spent time with Doug Koch and Steve Dell and Jeff Whitman and uh, you know, Kurt Weir, just, just basically drove around to all these different practices and was just like a fly on the wall. And it was so beneficial, uh, not only for surgical technique and seeing what other people do, um, but just le learning how they talk to patients. I mean, that's the biggest thing, especially being a, a, a refractive and, and, and LASIK surgeon, man, you know, that's such a huge part of it. How do you market? How do you speak to patients? How do you network with ODs? Um, you know, there's so many valuable things that you can get from visiting other practices beyond just surgical technique. Arsham, what, what do you think? I, I mean, I totally agree. I love hopping in the OR, see what the corny guys are doing. And we share things. I staff the retina fellows. I learned from the residents who work with other people, you know, like, oh, I saw this little trick. And I remember when we were doing more outside US surgeries, that was like, I loved it like seeing other people operate, we're kind of doing similar types of cases. It was, it's invaluable in my mind. Absolutely. Especially if you can take out the time, I think it's, it's probably more valuable than like the CME stuff that we do on the computer. You mentioned OUS. Do you guys like have any um, uh, uh, like surgical mission trips or anything that, that, that you go on or anything that you hear about that, that, that would be good for someone listening to this podcast who's thinking, you know, I'd like to get involved with some type of mission work or, or, or do something like that. Um, do you guys, have you guys done anything or, or heard anything along those lines? 
I'm not sure how much is going on right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, like for, for me personally, like some of this was just more investigational. So um, there are cases that you're doing, whether it's like devices or techniques. And um, But I think Orbis is great if you go on something like that well-organized. And certainly like the late Alan Crandall had an amazing like network of trips that were outside US, uh, Southeast Asia, um, Asia. I mean, it was incredible. I don't know how that stuff's gonna be and how quickly we're gonna get back to it. Um, but there's no like specific recommendation I would have right now. I would like say if you can get to like a clinic that's had some established like recurrent same surgeons going back on a more recurrent basis, there's a lot that you don't have to sort out whether that's like technicians, like equipment, things like that, that would make your life easier. Yeah, I know that uh, in the Dominican Republic, uh, you know, Juan Valle has an amazing facility there. And if people want to learn ICLs, people want to learn SMILE. Um, you know, I, I guess what I would say is, is, is uh, you're right. You know, we'll see what happens when the world opens up. But, but uh, you know, reach out to the manufacturers or whatever you're trying to do um, and ask them, hey, is there, is there a center of excellence, right? They have those all around the world. And, and, uh, and you can fly there and learn from somebody like that. I think that's a great idea. That's yeah, the network. Yeah, that's one. Of the, I tell you that that's one of my, my speaking of how to, you know, uh, you know, grow your surgical skills and, and pearls. When I was in Dominican, um, that's where I learned how to practice doing ICLs. Um, here's a good tip for those of you who have never done an ICL or looking to get started. One of the biggest things that you're worried about when you're putting in an ICL is that you'll like nick the capsule. Right. And you'll have to convert to a cataract surgery. And you're doing that in a you know, a young patient who is extremely myopic, right? It's the last thing that you want to do. So what, the way I learned it, the, the way they told me to do it there is just take a patient that you're already doing cataract surgery on anyway, and literally put in the ICL, right? And then take it right back out and then do the cataract surgery, which is wonderful. You know, I mean, you, it, worst, worst case scenario, you nick the capsule. Well, guess what? You're going to, you're going to do a rexus and do a cataract on that patient anyway. So, you know, that's something that I did a few times whenever I was learning, um, it's a conversation I had with the patient. You have to get informed consent, you know, uh, but, uh, but patients were, were, were willing to do that. And so that's kind of how I got started. So Blake, I, I feel like you touched on something amazing. You know, what in our mind is the hurdle to adopting a new technique, right? In my mind, it's, I don't want to hurt anybody, right? I'm comfortable where I am. And what if something happens? So some of the steps that I've taken when I'm adopting a new MIGS or you know, trying to be like you uh, is that I say, okay, how am I gonna get myself out of trouble? So you know, how do you know to use a new lens before you, you don't even know if it works? Well, if you have the skill set to take it out, then you can have a lot more confidence putting it in. And so practicing your techniques with removal and replacement, if you're adopting you know, new EDOFs or new trifocals, um, I think is huge because you'll be able to be an early adopter if you have the skill set to handle the problem if it happens. And so the same idea, you know, using the tripan, knowing if, it, if the, the trabecular meshwork is pale, I love that. So gonioing everybody. Um, so knowing how to get yourself out of trouble, you'll be able to take on these techniques with more confidence. I think that's a great point. And, and that, that makes me think about whenever I was in training at Tulane, and I would get mad because I, I had this one um, uh, attending that wouldn't let me do, I was trying to do every MIGS under, under, under the sun. And they're like, no, no, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I didn't, I never understood why. 
but then I realized it was because this doctor probably couldn't get me out of the mess if I got in a mess, right? So, you know, for, for people listening to this podcast that are in training right now, residents, you know, actually, Nandini, why don't you speak to that? If you if there's a resident here, you know, what 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 advice would you give them if they're wanting to, you know, start doing a device in training? If they're wanting to put an ice den in, but their attending has never done an ice den, or they're wanting to do, you know, uh, Yamini, but they've never, you know, uh, they're attending, maybe can't get them out of that scenario. Do you have any advice for for that resident? I, I think the best thing is to actually leverage your, your reps. I mean, get opportunities to go to the wet lab and try all of these devices. Like I was doing iStent wet labs. I was doing MyLoop wet labs. I was doing Femto wet labs all the time, you know, in residency as well as fellowship. And I think when you've also articulated to your attending that you've taken your own time to go and practice these techniques, they're also going to be more willing to let you try because many times people will come into the OR and say, oh, I just want to try it today, but they really haven't practiced any of the techniques and they don't really understand, you know, the complexity of, of what that involves. But I noticed, at least in my experience, when I articulated that people were very receptive and they were willing to kind of ease me in step by step. So even if it was just doing, just practicing putting the gonio lens on for that one case, I was happy because I got to actually tilt the scope, touch the eye, figure out what the pressure needed to be for me to visualize the trocular meshwork. And then maybe the next week when he saw me do a FACO, then he'd let me put in the eye stem. So it's very sequential and I think it takes time and patience. You should always be very thankful for every opportunity as a trainee. And all of those opportunities are really going to be cumulative. And ultimately, you know, you're going to get to do a lot more than you realize as you kind of take each experience as, you know, a positive one. Yeah, same to you, Arsham. What kind of what kind of uh, same question to you? What do you what what kind of uh, uh, you know trainee would you be more willing to let them try something? What kind of qualities would they have? What would they have to do uh, to make you comfortable? I make it a little easy for myself. So we have a, a massive like video archive, Blake. And if they watch the video, I get a link sent that they watch the video. They know the OR is not for practice. So. Um, I mean, that's kind of like a cop-out answer, but it really, I mean, they have to show a, a proficiency. And I think working backwards is one nice way to do it. You know, especially when we start with FACO, like if they're first years, you might start them with like just IA or wound hydration, whatever you want to decide. Um, but they also have to know the patient. I mean, I, I do not want to step in and you don't know anything about like axial length or like lens calculations. Like what, what did the topo show? What was their glaucoma course? How many drops are, I mean, if you haven't even done due diligence to know anything about the case, it's not happening. So probably most important thing for me, know your patient, take ownership. We all take care of these people together. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's our patient. Um, and from there, you have to practice outside of the OR. It's not like what Nicole was touching on. This is not a, a game that we play in the OR. And I, and I think that, that you know, um, I agree completely. And, and I think that what I would say is, is to kind of wrap us up here is, is there's been a lot of good points and there's been a lot of good tips about um, what you can do to grow your surgical skills. But I, I really think that the biggest tip that I have and the most important thing that you can do is just decide to do it, period, right? Like literally, it sounds so silly, but just that mental hurdle of, yes, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to add something to my practice is, is a huge thing for many surgeons and they just never do it. Right. So, so I think that just deciding and making that choice that you want to innovate, that you want to bring new things to your practice and to your community is, is the biggest challenge. Once you kind of get over that, that roadblock uh, at that point, there's a thousand different things that you can do to get ready uh, to better serve patients. And, 
And I appreciate you guys coming on to share many of those things with us tonight.